You know, I tried to watch that like 10 times this week so I wouldn't be emotional. <clears throat> you know, I tried to get all my tears out, you know, in my office. So I was like, Paul, you can't just lose it. I mean, that's not a good sign, buddy. So I lost it 10 times. Now I th- it might be 11 here. If you're interested to know more about this particular ministry, Liz Cooper is our director, and she'll be at the information table uh, afterwards. Um, There's several things I'd want to say about that video, Um, and maybe while I say them, you can find your way to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, page 993 in your pew Bible if you're using that. We'll get there in just a moment. Uh, But first, um, Arturo came for at least a year without the translator. And I just, that got me every time. He's almost always sat here in this back corner. And I don't know, it was a motivator for me to do the best I could, even though he couldn't understand what I was saying, um, that this guy was going to make an effort to come and and listen to whatever he could pick up for his hour here Um and the joy that he's radiates out now that he knows what we're singing or what we're saying has really been an incredible inspiration to me personally. Uh, a couple of key values that the, the video um, displays, one for, for our church, are first the incarnational principle, what I'm calling the incarnational principle. We know as Christians the reason we love is because of why? Christ loved us first. The reason we're saved is he came to us. He he makes the first move, and he always comes to where we are, and that's why we celebrate at Christmas this incredible moment of Advent, or what we call incarnation. God comes in the flesh because he knows we weren't going to come to him, so he gets himself in a body, as hard as that is to even believe, and he comes to us. And so we take that same principle and follow Jesus in the same way. We understand that it's not enough for us as a church to say our doors are open for everyone to come in. That's just not good enough. We have to say we're going out of those doors ourselves and we're going into the community. We're going to be incarnate. We're going to take what we have in here and move it out into the community. Because there's a lot of barriers, as they mentioned, just coming to a church. There's a lot of barriers just for, for somebody that looks like most of us to come into a church as a, as a visitor. But for somebody who's Hispanic or African American or something else other than the majority, it's quite a big barrier. So we want to try to hurdle those barriers ourselves as much as we can. And what brought the, their family to Christ's community was that we went out into their community first. So they knew us. They, they had relationships with us before they began attending. So when we talk about Christ Community Church 2.0, our vision for the next five years, we're not saying we're, we're not just saying we're open to all kinds of people. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we're pursuing all kinds of people. Many churches would say they were open, but that's not enough. You have to be pursuing. And the reason we know that is because Christ has pursued us. So we're just following his lead. 
The second thing I would want to say is just repeat back what Jesus says, and that's it, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The people involved in this ministry, or you could say any ministry, anybody who's been teaching the four-year-old class or anybody who's been in the youth ministry as a leader or a number of other places that you could serve around Christ Community Church, when I say to them, thank you for giving of yourself, thank you for giving of your time and your money and your talents, they almost always say the same thing. Paul, I, I mean, I got so much more back than I ever gave. And so we're just seeing that what Jesus said was true. We're not surprised by it, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so this morning, I want to talk about giving and receiving, and I want to use the words from Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Paul had planted a church in this critical city called Ephesus, and then he leaves Timothy, the younger person who's going to follow in Paul's footsteps behind, and he's going to lead the church. And so then Paul writes back to Timothy, who's now the pastor of the church, and in 1 Timothy, he gives him sort of basic instructions on how to lead a church. That's what 1 Timothy is all about. And through uh, the six chapters, he just tackles different topics about leadership or other things. And the last chapter he tackles is about money, about giving and receiving. And we're going to look at that uh, this week or this morning. This uh, passage is really a great passage as we move into a final week of our capital campaign because uh, next Sunday is Commitment Sunday. And this week will be a big week for most, if not many of you. This will be the time you'll have that last conversation where you're, you know, you're driving in the car together, you're around a kitchen table, you're walking somewhere and saying, hey, what what are we really going to write down on this card? What are we committed to together as, as a team or as an individual or as a family? And that's an important conversation. And as, we, as you have those conversations, I want to plant three words in your mind and hopefully in that conversation. And they all come from 1 Timothy. The first word is contentment. Contentment. second word is hope. And the third word is future. So as you think, as you have a discussion, uh, I want contentment, hope, and future to be planted in your mind as you have that discussion, and we'll see that as we get to 1 Timothy. So let's stand together as we read 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 3. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Paul writing to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth." They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You may be seated, and let's take a few moments to reflect together on God's Word. Contentment, hope, and a future. Let's look at those three in turn. It's helpful to just have a, a basic understanding of the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is a, an opulent, lavish, wealthy city. It's strategically located so that all the goods and services coming out of Europe land in this port city and then move off into Asia or all the stuff coming out of Asia come to this port city to be distributed to uh, Europe. So it's at a very strategic location. And with all this trade and commerce comes banking. And so here in this city, this very strategic city, you have a high level of trade and commerce, and you have a, a high level of banking. And with those two things came a lot of wealth, And so in Ephesus, money and your status, the status that money brought was important. People were very aware of where you were or where they were compared to you on the money and status scale if you lived in Ephesus. That, That may be hard for you to imagine, but just try to use your imagination there. Second thing that's interesting about Ephesus is that it hosts one of the seven wonders of the great world. There's a great temple to the uh, goddess Artemis, or sometimes called Diana, and so it's one of the great wonders of it's one of the great wonders of the ancient world. So thousands of people would flock to Ephesus to worship Diana, and not surprisingly, with thousands of people coming to worship, there were some people there that made their living off of the worship of Diana, and you can see that in Acts chapter 19. Many of these people became wealthy. And so they actually were using religion to become wealthy. That's part of the DNA of Ephesus. When you live in Ephesus, money and status makes a difference. And it's just fine to use religion to become wealthy, to use religion to increase your status, so to speak. Unfortunately, some of this uh, DNA of Ephesus begins to spill into the church. And you see it in verse 5. Paul's saying, I know it's hard to believe, Timothy, but I've heard that people are, are imagining that godliness is a means of gains. People inside the church. He's not talking about the people who worship at Ephesus. He's talking about people inside the church. They're, they're, they've got the DNA of the culture coming into the church. And so the people outside the church were using religion for status and wealth. And so the people coming into the church, some people have come in and said, I'll just use Jesus 
the same way these people use Artemis. And I'll get some status and I'll get some money by using Jesus for gain. Can you imagine that somebody in a wealthy country would use religion to become wealthy themselves? Uh, Yeah, you can imagine that. Nothing new under the sun. And you sense Paul's urgency that, that, that this DNA doesn't spill into his protege, Timothy. And you see it in verse 3. Teach and urge these things. It's like he's trying to reach through the pages and grab Timothy and shake him and say, don't let this spill into your heart and your soul. Verse four, 11 through 14, flee these things. Feel that urgency? Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. I charge you in the presence of God, keep these commandments. You just hear Paul's heart pulsating through these pages. And then verse 20, sort of closing verse, oh, Timothy, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. In other words, Timothy, there's been a, an incredible deposit given to you. Now, in the culture, the people are trapped on the surface. They're trapped on the surface trying to figure out money and status. But you actually have an eternal deposit. It's been placed in your soul, and you've got to guard it. You've got to make sure nothing spills into it. And so this key concept comes out in verse 6. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. He's trying to say there is something great to gain. There is a great deposit But it's not the way it's being used in the culture and spilling into the church. It's actually, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. Godliness isn't a means to gain. Godliness itself is the gain. That's what Paul's trying to say. Godliness might be defined as a a sound and growing understanding of Jesus Christ that shapes your heart, mind, soul. Godliness is I, I, I continue to grow in my understanding of Christ and it shapes my mind, it shapes my heart, it shapes my soul. That's how I know I'm growing in godliness. And this is so important that godliness isn't a means to something more valuable. It's valuable all by itself. You're not going to use it to get something that you want or to get somewhere. It has value. Jesus is the ultimate treasure. You don't use Jesus to get to your treasure. I wonder if you've ever thought that. I mean, you probably wouldn't have said it, but somehow in your mind has been planted, maybe even from somebody in the church. Well, if you have Jesus, then... Boy, you're going to get treasure. And somehow it comes out, whether it's by mistake or not, that I'm, I have Jesus in order to get these things that I really want or I really desire. John Piper has this provocative way of helping us evaluate whether that's part of our heart. So he asked this question. If you, go, you, if you could go to heaven and have spectacular sunsets... No more disease, no more depression. You could be surrounded by your family with no frustrations and no arguments. You could have all the toys and pleasures that you've ever wanted. Just Jesus wouldn't be there. Is that okay? 
if you get all the things that you would want, whatever those things are, but there's just this one little problem, Jesus isn't there, would that be okay? And if you would lean towards, I guess that'd be a bummer, but I mean, okay. He got me into the things that I wanted. See, then if that would be the way you might think about it, then Jesus isn't the treasure. He's just a means to you getting your treasure. And so the Apostle Paul doesn't want anybody in the church in Ephesus. He doesn't want anybody in the church of Wilmington to fall into this. And so he says contentment. You've got to have godliness with contentment, meaning Jesus has to be the end. When you have him, he's the treasure. So once you have him, then you're content. I have a sound and growing love of Jesus. And because of that, because I have Jesus, because he's my real treasure, then I can be content. That doesn't mean I wouldn't be frustrated or I wouldn't be sad at certain events, but inside, in my core, I'm content because I have everything I absolutely need. It's Jesus. And I I can totally trust him. He's never going to leave me or forsake me, even if my health does or my family does or my job does or my bank account does. Those things might create some level of concern or frustration or fear. But underneath all those things, you have a contentment because you can't lose Jesus. And a good gauge of godliness is whether you're content. A good gauge, how do you know if you're godly? Well, one gauge you could look at is content. So are you content? There's a poem goes like this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but what? It was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. (laughs) The youth and free spirit. Finally, my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Are you content? Just as a human being, I hope that you don't fall into this pattern that you get to 60 or 70 or 80 and you say, you know what, I never got what I wanted. And I'm not going to now. And I live my whole life discontent. That's a person who doesn't have Jesus at the center. That's how you know, that's one of the gauges you would use on whether I'm really growing in godliness is I'm growing in contentment because all these other treasures that I used to hold on to, I don't hold on to, at least it's not as tightly as I used to. And so I hope that you're content. One, a sure sign of discontentment, verse 9, is the desire to be rich. Now, when you hear that phrase from Paul, I don't want you to 
think, okay, Jeff Bezos, rich, uh, lottery, rich, Mark Zuckerberg, rich. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the desire to be rich. This person thinks this way. If I just had this one more thing, then I would be content. That's what he's trying to say when he uses the word rich. He's trying to say your desire to be rich is what goes through your head is, if I could just have this one thing, okay, man, I would be content. Paul calls that a snare. Such a great word. You, You think, if I just have this iPhone, if I just have this car, if I just have this dream job, if I just get this house, if I just get this position, or if I just get this promotion, or if I finally get my degree, then I'll be content. If that's what you're thinking, pow, you are stepping into a trap. And if you have any age at all, you know, you know the trap. Because you got some of the things that you thought would make you content, and then you realized, you know what? After having it, I'm not very content. There's always just one more thing I've got to have. And so Paul calls calls it a trap. And I love this uh, very vivid description. He says, people who've fallen into this trap, they plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. They're, They're not being plunged. They've plunged themselves. You ever seen somebody bob for apples? Right, they got the big barrel, and there's all these red, delicious apples floating around. You can't use your hands, so you've got to plunge yourself down in here to try to grab the one red apple that you think is going to be the answer. You're going to win life if you can just grab this one apple. But as soon as you grab the apple, it's not enough, so you've got to go back and grab another apple, and you keep doing it until you drown yourself. That's somebody who's not content. So I'm trying to plant the word contentment into your mind, into your soul, into your conversation. Because it's very difficult to be generous if you're not content. People who aren't content feel like, gosh, if I give up this $10, that means that one thing that could bring content. You see, you get that in your mind. And so the person who's not content, very, very difficult to be generous. Second word I'm trying to plant into your mind this morning. Verse 17 is the word hope. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Instead, set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul's going to point out one more danger of wealth for the follower of Jesus and this is what I'm calling the danger. This danger is what I'm calling the, the migration of hope. The migration of hope. You see, Paul's concern is that, that these people who know that God richly provides everything to enjoy, their hope migrates to uncertainty of riches. See, I, I'm a believer. I'm in, in Jesus. And I have known at some point or at least tasted that he provides everything for my enjoyment. But somehow my hope has migrated to the uncertainty of riches. And I purposely use the word migrate because it doesn't happen in a night. It happens over time. You don't migrate from one place to the next in a day. 
You migrate over time. You take a series of small steps, and then you find yourself saying, hey, I was in this country. I was in this way of thinking, but I've migrated over time. And it seems like, well, now I'm in a totally different mindset. I'm in a totally different country. My hope has migrated from knowing God richly provides to the uncertainty of riches. And the migration of hope may have happened to some of you. You were 22. You didn't have very much, but you loved Jesus. And you generally enjoyed your life. But you got your first meaningful job. You got your first meaningful paycheck. Somehow your hope and your heart started a long migration. Now you're 52. You make more than you could have ever imagined that you would make when you were 22. But you're not happy anymore. You just can't seem to get ahead. You just can't seem to make enough. And somewhere between 22 and 52, hope migrated. You didn't arrive there all at once, but it just began to shift from, I trust the Lord, I love the Lord, I'm going to follow the Lord no matter what, to... I trust the Lord and I love what my paycheck brings me to. I like the Lord and I trust my paycheck. Somehow that migration happened over time. There's one indicator. Your hope is migrating. Proverbs 18.11 says this. Listen carefully. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. The wealth of the rich. Here's the richest man in the world saying this to other wealthy people. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it it's an, as an unscalable wall. The wealth of the rich is like a fortified city. They imagine it as an unscalable wall. You know your hope is migrating when you think your wealth is a fortress. When you start thinking there's an amount of money that if you could save, you would be able to protect your family yourself, maybe even like your children, your grandchildren. If I, Paul, if I just get amassed this amount of money, it's going to be like a, a fortress. It's going to be an unscalable wall. I can save my way to safety. If that's in your thinking, then you're this Proverbs 1811 person. You're, you're beginning to trust that your wealth can build this wall. And here's one question I would have. How much money do you think that would be? What comes to mind? Yeah, if I had X, then I would have sort of an unscalable wall for me, my family, my kids, maybe my grandkids. Here's the universal answer to that question. More than you currently have. <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't matter what you make in here. Your number was more than you currently have. Your wall isn't quite big enough. You've got a few more bricks to put on it, or you've got a lot more bricks to put on it. But somehow you, you begin to believe that somehow I can build an unscalable wall. And so God is not a mighty fortress. Your money is. And when you begin to believe that you can build an unscalable wall, it's very difficult to be generous. Because you've got to build a wall. And you think... Well, as soon as I get that wall fixed, then I might be able to... But you know what? You never, get, you never get to the point because it's always a little bit more than you currently have. 
One of the statistics I was listening to this week is that in the United States, the more money you make, the less you give as a percentage. So they looked at people who make about $50,000, which is sort of the median income for the United States. And as a percentage, they're a lot more generous than people who make $200,000. Pretty significant difference. And as you go up in each increment, your generosity goes down as a percentage. Why is that? Well, there's probably lots of reasons. But I think one reason is the person who makes $50,000 doesn't think they can build an unscalable wall. They just don't make enough to think that they could. But at 200, you say, oh, you know what? If I just saved and invested and did these things, then I can build an unscalable wall. And I've got to, to close in on that. And then it's harder to be generous. And so second question Second word, hope. Has your hope migrated? Is your hope in the rock of ages or the uncertainty of riches? See, I can't answer that. That's the question you have to wrestle with. Contentment. Are you content? Where's your hope? Final word here, future. And I think understanding this is the key to uh, what Paul's trying to talk about As for the rich in this present age, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty. Don't set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But, verse 19, help them understand they can store up treasures for themselves. You can actually store now, you can store up treasures for yourself as a good foundation for your future. So that they may take hold of of that which is truly life. Now, when you read verse 17 and you hear, as for the rich in this present age, or the rich in this present world, Timothy, talk to the, the rich in this present age. That's a little bit of a head scratcher, is it not? You go, I don't know any rich in another age. Like, I mean, in this present age, where, where are the other rich people? They're only in this present age. But see, Paul understands something that there's another age to come. That's worked its way all the way down into Paul's soul. There's a present age and there's an age to come. There is now and then there's the future. And so this is the key that's going to open up Paul for radical generosity and I would say radical contentment. He knows something deep down that the world and its desires are quickly passing away. And so with this in mind, he gives... Paul this advi- or he gives Timothy this advice, verse 17. First of all, enjoy what God has provided. That's important for us to hear. You should enjoy what God has provided. He hasn't provided the exact same amount of money for everybody, but he's saying, enjoy it. God, it's come from God. You should enjoy it. There's no question you should enjoy it. It's come from God, and he wants you to be a good steward. But part of being a good steward is enjoying what he's given us. But he wants to met, bring a measure of balance that with that in verse, seven, in verse 19. Make sure you understand that you also are supposed to be storing up for yourselves for a good foundation in your future. There's a, another life, an eternal life, a longer lasting life than your 50 or 70 or 90 years here. And your generosity right now affects that. This, this is, to me, mind-bending. 
He's saying to Paul Phillips, Paul, you can be doing something right now that's going to affect your entire eternity. So in this little blip of 55 years or longer, you can be doing, you can be making donations or deposits. You can build, be building up treasure that's going to last for billions and billions of years. And that, that's the kind of investment Paul wants people to get excited about. Store up for yourselves treasures that are going to be in the future. In other words, Paul wants Timothy to understand. He wants the people in Ephesus to understand. He wants you and I to understand. Eternity starts right now. It, it starts right now. You can be, begin to build on that right now. And so when you get to heaven because of your good deeds... Or your generosity. He talks about in verse 18. Those good deeds and your generosity are in some ways storing up treasure. That you're going to be able to open up when you get to heaven. Now, I don't know how many of you all have an Apple iPhone. But if you buy an Apple iPhone from a store and not online, the, the salesperson who sells you the, the Apple iPhone. You know this if you've gotten one from Best Buy or some phone company. They bring out the box. Remember this? Bring out the box. Mr. Phillips, you need to open the box. I'm like, dude, just open the box. I want the phone. I want the box. But they said, no, Apple wants you to enjoy the sensation of opening the box. They're very smart, very smart. Because they spent millions of dollars on this box. I was reading how, how many people they had dedicated every day just opening up boxes just for the sensation. The heaviness of the box, the quality of the box, what you saw when you first opened the box, it created a sensation that created brand loyalty. So I open the box and I get a little sensation. Wow. Right? Wow. Oh, man. It's a little sensation. A little heart jump. Got my iPhone. Why do they need that little sensation and brand loyalty? Because in two years, guess what? I've lost the sensation. My iPhone is not up to date. And I get frustrated at this thing that I thought, oh, if I just had the iPhone 4S. Now it looks like a postage stamp to me. I'm like, who would want this stupid thing, an iPhone 4S? Now I've got an iPhone 7. I'm like, dude, who has an iPhone 7 anymore? What an iPhone. Do you see what happens? They figured out the trap. That you can, set, you can have a little sensation. It creates brand loyalty, but they know it's going to go away, and they're going to need you to come back. And here's what Paul is saying. You can store up for yourselves these little boxes, which I think are people. I think they're things. And when you get to heaven, you're going to open this treasure chest up, and people are going to say, because of your good deeds, because of your generosity, I'm here. And you know what? You're never going to lose that sensation. That's never going to fade over time. It's going to be giving back to you for all of eternity. So he's trying to drill it down in our minds here this morning to say, you have that opportunity right now. 
You do not have the opportunity after you die. I've heard one person say, it doesn't matter what you give when you're dead. Because everyone gives the same amount when they're dead. What is it? All. I gave everything after I died. What matters is what you give while you're alive. The good deeds that you give and the money you give right now. Just imagine you're going to be able to open these boxes. And I think people are going to pour out to say, thank you. God used you to get me here in his economy. It's going to be incredible. And you're never at that moment going to say, dang, I wish I'd bought that iPhone 7 a little bit earlier. It's never going to happen to you. But if you really don't believe it, if it's not worked down all the way to your soul, you're going to step in trap after trap here. And I don't want you to step in the trap. I've stepped in the trap before. It's hard to get out of the trap. This week's going to be an important week. And what I'm trying to do here this morning is to plant these words in your mind. Contentment. What's a mark of godliness? Contentment. Hope. Has your hope migrated? Yes, Paul, when you were talking, I remember when I was 22... But somehow at 52 or 72, my hope migrated. Three, future. You think about the future. Is it real to you or is it just, yeah, whenever? It's got to be real. Once that gets worked down, then generosity of your time, of your talents, of your money will easily flow out of your heart and soul. Let's pray together. Lord, we come here this morning to hear your words, to be challenged by your words, uh, to be encouraged by your words, and to think of your words for our, our minds, our hearts, our souls. So would you strengthen us this morning and in the week to come to, to hear your word again, to follow in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.